This is The Kicker, a podcast about journalism and media from the Columbia Journalism Review. I'm Pete Vernon. This week, a special episode. On Monday, CJR hosted a conference in downtown Charlottesville, Virginia, bringing together local and national journalists to discuss the coverage of what happened there in August, as well as larger issues concerning race in journalism. We're going to share some of the segments of that conversation, and there's a write-up of the event on our website. I'm joined now by our editor and publisher, Kyle Pope, who was there in Charlottesville and is sitting here in the studio. So, Kyle, thanks for being here. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. So just to start out before we get into some of the audio from the event, why did you want to have this conversation? Why does it feel particularly relevant right now? Well, I actually told the um, crowd in Charlottesville this, but I remember after the um, the presidential election last November, I remember waking up on Wednesday morning thinking, all right, so what just happened was a massive miss on the part of journalism, which didn't see the Trump electorate coming, didn't see the results of the election coming, and, and a lot needed to change. There needed to be a fundamental sort of rethinking of how we go about our business, and a lot of that happened. There's a lot of soul-searching, there is a lot of finger-pointing, and, and change happened. I had the exact same feeling after the Charlottesville protest, thinking, wow, this is something that journalism does not have its arm around. You know, it's not going to be news to a lot of people, the extent and breadth and reach of racism in America. But I didn't think and I don't think it's being conveyed with a sense of urgency that it needs to be in most media outlets and that there needs to be a similar amount of soul searching around that. And it hadn't and it hasn't been happening, frankly, it certainly hasn't happened with the urgency that you saw after the election. So, you know, one of the things that we can do at CJR is sort of convene an audience of people who can actually do something about this. So I thought it was important. I watched the live stream uh, from the event, but can you set the scene for us a little bit? Where was it in Charlottesville and what was the audience like? Who was there? Yeah, so it was, um, I hadn't been to Charlottesville for, um, I was, I've was i been there in the last year, but I haven't really spent a lot of time there. And you, you may not realize unless you're there how compact the area where all this stuff went down in August is. So the place that we had the event is in a, um, a, a it used to be a church. It's now called the Haven. It's a place where they have, um, where homeless people can go and they have uh, community events and stuff. It's right across the street from the park where uh, these white supremacists gathered and two blocks from where Heather Iyer was killed. So right near where the statue it's, of Robert E. Lee it's is. It's all right there. And, you know, it, so... This was on a Monday night. Um, this church was absolutely packed, and it was a you know it was a pretty diverse mix of people who were there: um, white, black, young, old. There were some. Um, the head of the NAACP in Charlottesville was there. The um, a person who was really involved in city government, who was dealing with these issues, was there. You know, I, I was I was really Im- impressed with how um, raw all this still is, and it's obvious when you think about it, but right. Right. It, in, 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 until you're there, you don't realize the trauma that everybody in that town went through not very long ago. So one of the, you know, the results is that the this, this discussion went on for two and a half hours. People were absolutely wrapped um, in the sense of like, it was incredibly quiet. 
there wasn't a lot of shifting around or shuffling around or people coming and going. People were really switched on. Uh, they were really focused. And it was clear to me that these are just incredibly important issues that mean an enormous amount to everybody. And it made me even more grateful that we were having this conversation. I should mention, because we'll hear his voice, I think, um, in some of the clips that we're going to play, that we're incredibly lucky that one of our senior editors at CJR, Brendan Fitzgerald, um, moved to Charlottesville a few months ago. So he's there. He's a, he, before he came to CJR, he worked for Seville Weekly, the alt-weekly in Charlottesville. So he knows the town. He knows people. He was really instrumental in helping us put this put this thing together. Right. And one of the things I noticed in watching it and then kind of replaying the conversation that went on there was this focus on the history of the town and the context in which these events of August 12th took place. Yeah. I mean, again, like this really gave it a sense of grounding. And, it, and you know, it just it was very clear to me that everybody there had an enormous stake, even the people who weren't who 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 had come in from the outside. Most everybody there had a connection. I mean, we'll hear more about this later. But Jenna Wortham from The Times Magazine went to school there. Uh, and then left. Jamel Bowie, who writes for Slate, lives there now. He had moved back. And then we had a um, a writer uh, uh, named Jordy Yeager, who's a terrific writer, who's based there. Um, another writer named Collier Meyerson, is who writes, who's, who just wrote a piece for CJR's print issue. It, it was a terrific exchange. Yeah, there was an exchange early in the evening when Brendan asked Jenna Wortham, who, as you mentioned, went to UVA, about the importance of journalists including historical and regional context in their writing. And then Jamel Bowie, Slate's chief political correspondent who lives in Charlottesville, followed up on that. So my question for Jenna is, I mean, plenty of recent news coverage of Charlottesville doesn't identify this city or its university as a former home to a eugenics program. Uh, it doesn't identify Charlottesville as a place where a black student body president was assaulted um, just a little over a decade ago. Um, and I wonder what we lose uh, as, a, as a community when journalism omits that. That's a great question. Um, well, we lose a lot of context, and I think we lose a lot of significance, and I, I think you know, I was having um, a conversation with some family members after August 12th who were just like, kind of like, well, what's the big deal about a statue? And I was kind of like, well, you just, we have to talk about why those statues were, were put up in the first place. And I think, you know, if you don't have journalists, you don't have editors, you don't have people in the news business who are able to take a step back and look at a historical, you know, get a bigger historical scope and kind of zoom out and talk about, you know, those statues, statues of Confederate leaders went up um, during and around Jim Crow and around the Civil Rights Act to sort of as reminders of, you know, that there were people in this country who didn't think you deserve those rights. And I think we, it, it makes it difficult to make a case for why everyone's so upset. You know, you can kind of write off the decision or the, the interest in having a statue removed or moved as not being an erasure of a history, but almost a amendment to a historical record that was created with a bias in the first place. And I think we forget that in the founding of this country and in the founding of well, yeah, this country, that, that those who got to write the history books did it with very specific and deliberate intents. And we kind of assume that everyone had um, the best motivations and intentions when they put up signs that omit that UVA was built by slaves. And even the, the placard in my hotel room is like, 
this beautiful signage about UVA and, and when it opened and it was this great university, but it doesn't say that women and black people weren't allowed to attend for several years, you know? And it's like, you know, that's interesting and it's important. And I think when we forget or when we try to erase the parts that make us uncomfortable, we do a disservice. Um, and it makes the stuff that's uncomfortable feel less approachable when it just needs to be part of the entire picture and not the parts that we just don't want to deal with. I feel like seizing on the entire picture is something that, that Jamel also kind of spoke to in terms of uh, how, you create, how you create and present a narrative. Um, you know, do you present it as a discrete act that occurred over the course of a few hours on a single day or do you provide um, years, decades of context um, for things like that? I mean, I'm always inclined to want to provide the years and decades of necessary context because I, I don't quite understand how you would even begin to grok what happened without that context. Um, that's especially true here, uh, not just with regards to the, the reasons for the play, uh, placing of the Robert E. Lee statue or the Stonewall Jackson statue, um, not just for UVA's history, but sort of the, the particular history of Charlottesville's African-American community um, the expropriation uh, over, over decades of Charlottesville's African-American community, um, that is necessary and needed context for understanding uh, the events that happened on August 12th and getting kind of a, a general um, uh, picture of, of sort of what Charlottesville is and, and the kind of struggles it, uh, it's going through. I want to make a real quick comment, and that's Jenna uh, mentioned that your, your hotel room like mentioned the beauty of UVA in Charlottesville, and I find that whenever I talk about Charlottesville with people who have never been here or have kind of just heard about it, um, they say, oh, that's a really beautiful place. And I think there's a real sense in which the real beauty of Charlottesville, 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 um, that beauty obscures uh, these conflicts and these disruptions and these problems. Uh, it lets people sort of um, immerse themselves in an illusion uh, that I would hope that August 12th punctured, but I'm not entirely convinced that it has. What really struck me about that conversation was that all of the journalists on stage at this event and Brendan, CJR's U.S. project editor, have a connection to Charlottesville, whether it was going to school at UVA or living in the community. And I'm glad that Jamel and Jenna advocated for more journalists, including historical context and uh, a sense of place and the history of a place in their reporting when we're talking about race, whether that's in Charlottesville or whether that's in Richmond, where there's another battle going on over statues or wherever St. Louis, as we're seeing protests happen right now. Um, what other major themes did you notice coming out of the evening? Well, I mean, I think, by the way, that conversation was you can imagine, um, especially if a lot of the people in the room had been in Charlottesville for a very long time, it's not an easy conversation to have. Um, but it's incredibly important, and I think they all made a compelling and critical case about why the time to avoid those conversations is over. Um, the other big finding in, as it relates to that is, is, and this is something that if you're not from Charlottesville, you don't really appreciate. But, I mean, it, it is real. you know, it's a college town. It's a, it's a pretty liberal town. It's a, it's a beautiful place. And uh, I think it was Collier Meyerson, um, who grew up on the Upper West Side of Manhattan, uh, sort of equated it to <laughs> the Upper West Side of, of that part of the world. But her point is, and all their point was that, like, don't be deluded into thinking that just because there are a lot of people who, who – think like you or who seem to have political views like you or whatever who live in your community that you're insulated from this kind of 
racist thinking and this kind of violence. I mean, basically, one of the sort of very sobering takeaways for me is that all of us living anywhere are going to have to deal with this and that you can't take um, comfort in the fact that you think it's not in your community because a lot of people didn't think it was in Charlottesville either. Right. And they, you mentioned Collier. She and Brendan had a really interesting exchange about the language that journalists use to describe these sort of events. Collier, uh, shortly after August 12th, wrote a piece called Fighting White Supremacy Means Owning Up to American History. And in that piece, she wrote, the justification of white supremacy has often rested on a veneer of civility. Um, I think part of that veneer is language. It's the words we use to describe history, whether it's uh, our own or whether it's the history we share uh, with our neighbors, with our city. Um, and so I, I would love to hear um, Collier's thoughts on when it comes to telling stories about race, does journalism have a language problem? And uh, what issues inform that problem so we can address it? Whoa, <laughs> that's a big question. Um, so just to back up that piece I wrote, um, I name, I go through history and talk about um, how white supremacy has been justified through language. And I started with slavery, which was the Bible. Um, how can we uh, make these savages civil? Um, slavery. And then um, I went to uh, Jim Crow and segregation, and I talked about um, the language there, which was um, again like uh, it was it was cloaked in um, civility. Like, how can we be separate and equal at the same time? Um, and so I think that this country has. <clears throat> I think that something that a lot of us are talking about um, and not sort of saying explicitly is that, uh, which is obvious from, from the fact that we're all here, is that this country has a race problem and white people don't know how to talk about um, a lot of white people, not all white people, uh, don't know how to talk about racism. And I think that that exists also in journalism. I mean, I also, um I'd like to add to that a little bit just because I think that there's also a degree to which um, by not calling white supremacy what it is, news organizations run the risk of alienating uh, those people in their community they hope to cover news for, they hope to reach, they hope to speak to and speak with. Um, there was a, uh, an incident a few months ago in Baltimore where um, the Baltimore City Paper, which is the alt-weekly in that city, um, wrote about a, uh, a court case in which members of the Baltimore Block, uh, which is an activist group in that city, um, were in the courtroom galley taking notes, and um, the majority, if not the entirety of the people who were there taking notes were black. Um, and the judge presiding in that room uh, said, non-credentialed media are not permitted to take notes effectively banning those people who were there taking notes uh, from doing so unless they worked for the city paper or the Baltimore Sun, what have you. Um, I spoke with the editor of the city paper about this and he also wrote about this. Um, and his take was, the reason there are people there taking those notes is because they do not trust the Baltimore city paper and they do not trust the Baltimore Sun to reach them directly and to say what it is they are up against in their day to day. Um, and I don't blame them. Uh, 
Yeah, I mean, I think ultimately it is the responsibility of, I will just say, white journalists to gain the trust of people of color in this country. Um, and so I know that when I approach, um, I largely report on communities of color, and so I know that my relationship to these communities is very different as a person of color than it is um, as a white reporter. And it is like, you know, it's in the statistics that you're interpreting, it's in the um, questions that you're asking, and uh, the research that you're researching. And I think that ultimately, um, if you're a good white reporter, <laughs> then you can um, do that work to gain trust inside of, in, in, into a community who largely does not trust you. That topic of how to gain trust came up a lot in the context of language. And what the people on stage were saying was it's often tied up in who's actually doing the reporting, right? Yeah. And, and this is something that, um, again, Collier was made a powerful point about and told a story about how she covered a protest um, that was um, the protesters were largely people of color, but all the journalists except her were white. And she was the one that ended up getting the story. And it just brought up the importance of of having a diverse newsroom. I mean, this is something that that um, the media business has been banging on about for a while now. And there's, <clears throat> there's not been a ton of progress, frankly. But I think, you know, um, again, maybe this is one of those sort of clarifying outcomes of, of Charlottesville and, and that we can really begin to have a conversation about why this is incredibly critical just as we after the presidential election realized like we can't we can't have all of our reporters who cover America be based in New York City. Right. And Jamel talked about this idea of who is actually in newsrooms uh, in the context of an event that happened in a timely way um, just last week. Uh, we'll listen to that now. I don't think journalists have had the the easiest time or the best time clearly uh, Labeling, labeling things for what they are and, and sort of outright saying um, what is before us. And so I think a great example of this, and I'm sure everyone here has now heard of this, is when Jamel Hill at ESPN on Twitter called the president a white supremacist. And the reaction from ESPN was like, whoa, whoa, whoa we don't know her. Um, <laughs> and the reaction from the president and the White House was she needs to be fired and sort of there's a big pundit storm about all of this. And implicit in the storm around it is the idea that it's somehow not objective, it's not fair, it's not, um, it's, it's not factual to re refer to the president of the United States as a white supremacist. But I think there's a case for that being a completely factual objective claim, and the problem with the claim is, isn't that it doesn't have a factual basis um, that can't be argued or discussed or reported. The problem with the claim, as far as I can see it, is that it mostly just offended white people. Um, a lot of white people were offended by the designation. They were offended by the implication um, uh, that comes with labeling the president a white supremacist and pushed against it. And I, I see that. I see that pushing against the implication in all sorts of journalism about the present moment. I see it in the kind of genre of reporting about Trump voters. I see it in how the, the labeling of any segment of American voters as racist or motivated by racism or, um, uh, or uh, willing to tolerate racism or 
make taking actions that sort of reveal um, uh, not far under the surface an interest in racial hierarchy, a, a pushing against that narrative of saying that's not fair, you can't judge people like that, you can't, uh, you can't deny them their nuance. And for my part, you know, actions, at a certain point we have to take the actions of groups of people, of voters, of politicians, and, and apply to them the labels that fit. Um, and I see a, a reluctance around that when it comes specifically with like the president, the president's supporters, and racism. And my, my hunch, my guess about all of this um, is that, that it reflects like the sociology of journalism. Because um, the same hesitancy isn't, I don't see it among journalists of color. I don't see black journalists like hesitate about labeling the president's racism. I don't see any of that. But among white journalists, there is a very real reluctance to take that step um, to treat a word like white supremacist as almost a slur rather than a, a term that describes a set of relations, a set of ideologies, a set of beliefs um, that may well apply uh, to some swath of American voters. Jamel's point there about the ties between language and who's in American newsrooms is well taken. And I thought one of the audience questions towards the end of the evening really brought those two points together. Yeah, and it really, um, as you say, it brought it together and it really brought out why we're there, why we're there as journalists, because, um, you know, we can talk in broad ways about these issues and about racism and about how it's covered, but ultimately it comes down to what words you use. And I thought this this person in the audience really nailed it and their response was incredibly helpful. And again, it's like, it's helpful in a way that editors and reporters can actually respond to and adapt to and change. Yeah, and Jamel and Jenna both give really thoughtful answers here. Good evening, thank you so much for being here. My question is inspired by the ways in which media tends to ally two words, racial and racist. Racial is almost always preferred. Um, and it seems to me that white comfort sells newspapers. But discomfort is an important part of the learning process and change. So how then can journalists push the envelopes? How can journalists create new vocabularies, move the needle from euphemism to accuracy, move from the phrase racially tinged or racially motivated or race-based to the actual word racism or racist? Thank you. I mean, I think the answer to that is just journalists have to do it. I mean, it, it's, what, what's funny about it all is that it's not as if journalists don't recognize what's happening. So I, I mentioned the thing with Jamel Hill at ESPN, and that Friday, so this past Friday, um, a journalist at the New York Times, and, and so Trump was like raging against that on Twitter, and a journalist at the New York Times said something to the effect on Twitter that Trump is doing this because of the concessions he made on the Dreamers, on DACA. That is, that is, that is a recognition of, of the fact that Trump is making a racist appeal. He recognizes that his core supporters are upset that he's helping immigrants and so he's gonna go after a black woman to sort of say, no, no, I got you, don't worry. Like, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm still on your side. And yet, if you were just to say that out loud, people would be like, whoa, whoa, that's like, that's too much. Um, uh, that's not fair to his supporters. That's, we can't prove that he's racist and I, for, for my part I, I think it's just a challenge of, of being willing to recognize that 
racist is not, or racism, or white supremacy, these aren't pejoratives, these aren't terms, I, this isn't trying to make people feel bad. These are descriptive words that describe actual phenomena and actual uh, uh, belief systems and, and, and material realities. Um, and to ally that by saying racial is, is to, to mislead people. Um, it's to obscure the truth of what's happening. Um, but I, I, you know, this is now I'm just like reflecting on the frustration of it. It's as if there is a giant hole in the road, a giant pothole, and everyone acts as if the pothole is there. We all react to the pothole. But if I were to say, maybe we should do something about that pothole, it's like, shut up. Like, don't, don't talk about that pothole. It's not there. It's not there. What are you talking about? There's no pothole there. And that, to me, is how I think a lot of the press is treating racism and just being blunt and straightforward about racism. And that's, I have, like, a whole rant about that, so I'll just end there. But, well, but I just want to add, though, I, I think this is a really great question, and I'm glad that you brought this up, because I think you can look at a correlation between diversity in a newsroom, and if you have a black editor and a black copy editor who can look at something like housing discrimination or housing segregation or income inequality and say, you know, that's racist, or the fact that people in Charlottesville who work at UVA can't afford to go to this university, they don't have a living wage and actively haven't been able to get it, that is racist. It's not a racialized thing, it's racist. And I think I don't think white people are always comfortable saying, well, is that racist? Am I racist? Like, I think there's, there's a sense in which if you are a white person and you are covering this particular news cycle, you have to do a lot of self-interrogation that doesn't rely on turning to the one black person in your newsroom and being like, can we say this? It's like, no, you need to have the authority to understand what racism is. And I don't, I don't always see that. And I, I do see things like racially tinged and I'm like, what is racially tinged about this? Like, I, I, it's, it's infuriating. And I mean, I think, you know, I've, I've learned this with working on the podcast with Wesley and I. We don't have, we have editors, but we don't, we do what we want to do. And we're openly like, this is racist shit, you know? And it's stuff that like the newsroom won't say. And I, and I think it's because there's this fear of being wrong. There's this fear of, the, of your employer, like ESPN, not backing you up. And that's scary. It's scary as a journalist to see that happen and be like, well, what happens if I tweet the wrong thing? Is my organization gonna back me up? Are they gonna be worried about litigation? I mean, I think we're in this culture of fear of being wrong and fear of being, we're afraid of what we don't know. And I think if you are a white person in this country right now, you have to interrogate what it means to be white and what your identity means and whose identity is often sacrificed for your identity to be considered supreme. And I think that there's a real, like a real lack of, of willingness to do that self-interrogation. And that's why we have that kind of language in a lot of newspapers across the board. You can check out a full write-up of the event in Charlottesville on our webpage, cjr.org. But Kyle, I just want to say I'm really glad we're having these sort of events that we're getting out of New York City, where we're based, to do it. Um, I know we've got another one coming up. Yeah, so we're um, in in a couple of weeks now, October 4th, um, we'll be holding a half-day conference in Atlanta with the Four Seasons. It's actually tied to our next print issue, which will be out then, which is all about the media and Trump. So we've got an amazing lineup of people from Glenn Thrush at The Times, Eric Wimple at The Post, Olivia Nuzzi at Merit Magazine, uh, Carlos Watson, who's the editor-in-chief of Ozzy.com. Um, it's just, it's a terrific group that's going to just 
Uh, we're, we're, one of the things we're calling this new printed edition is the year that changed journalism. And, and we're going to sort of dissect how Trump changed what we do. And we'd love to have you in Atlanta. If you can't make it, we'll stream this live on CGR.org. Yeah, I'm excited to watch it. And you should all be excited for our new print issue because I've gotten to read the the proofs of it, and it's got a ton of great work. Um, there's some incredible authors in there, some really thoughtful pieces, and you'll be hearing much more about it on The Kicker and on our website. But in the meantime, you should check out all the great work we've got at CJR. That was our show. Thanks for kicking it with us, and we'll see you next week.